book of Acts, the book of Acts, uh, chapter 18, and I'll read the opening uh, 17 verses. The book of Acts. When you get there, probably if you have a study Bible, you'll see it is about Paul's uh, first visit to Corinth. So, let us give attention to the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 18, starting at verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named uh, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing what Paul, uh, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And that ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Let's pray. Lord, again, your word is before us. Now, give us this hour, this time, uh, ears that truly hear. And a heart and a mind, a will, a soul that responds in faith and in love to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
I've mentioned before that our youngest son uh, is a Marine. Uh, he spent his four years there and, and is out now, but that's my understanding. They always consider themselves Marines, even if not on active duty. And as that time in his life started, and therefore our lives and such, I started getting um, involved a little bit in some just some history and reading and thinking about the Marine Corps. And of course, you know their, um, their motto. It was not always this way because they're actually a year older as a Corps than the United States. They got formed in 1775. But in 1883, they took up the Latin phrase, Semper Fidelis, always faithful. Always faithful. That's the, uh, uh, you know, the one, on one of the official Marine sites, they summarize what this means. It says, Semper Fidelis distinguishes the Marine Corps bond from any other. It goes beyond teamwork. It is a brotherhood that can always be counted on. Latin for always faithful, Semper Fidelis became the Marine Corps motto in 1883. It guides Marines to remain faithful to the mission at hand, to each other, to the Corps, and to country, no matter what. Uh, so that's, uh, uh, that's their uh, motto, and of course, they... they drill that into them, and much of the Marine Corps history testifies to the fact that they, uh, they, are, they seek to abide by that. Um, well, I think we're talking tonight also about faithfulness. You know from the uh, bulletin and from Armin's announcement uh, entitled this sermon, God's Faithfulness in Ours, and I want to speak on that issue as, and, I, and I think the text that describes Paul coming to Corinth is an excellent text to do that. We're going to find tonight that God's uh, faithfulness is not hindered in a secular and corrupt society. This text is going to talk about the gospel coming to, uh, coming to Corinth. Uh, so our theme tonight is really because God is faithful to us, especially in times of difficulty, we should respond with faithful service to him. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward, and yet very important. And the sermon basically has two, two main points to it, God's faithfulness and ours, our responding faithfulness. And I want us to, to take a look at how faithful the Lord was to Paul as he enters Corinth. So, God's faithfulness. First point under this, God's faithfulness is not hindered in a secular and corrupt society. This passage is about Paul coming to Corinth. And let's take a moment just to reflect about the city of Corinth. We can do so, you know, particularly as, as, as what we know in the time of the Apostle Paul and some of the history about that. One of the things about Corinth is it's very strategically located. By the way, it also has a very ancient history. It goes back, uh, I think most people think there's about like 750 BC. Um, it goes back that far. And they, you know, there's various architecture and such. Interestingly enough, about 146 
B.C., uh, Rome destroyed it, literally destroyed it. And then about, it was basically left with nothing for about a century. But around 44 uh, B.C., I think it was Augustus at that time, he rebuilt it as a Roman city. And, and of course, brought back many of the old buildings were rebuilt like they were, and et cetera. But the key thing is, is how strategically located it is. If you know something about Greece, you know there's this, I think the, the technical term is the isthmus. It's a stretch where the, the peninsula of Greece narrows to approximately just four miles and so if you picture this now, there's a significant part of what we call Greece today uh, below this narrow part, and there's a significant amount above it. And so what that means is you can have ships coming in from the west and the east and be right there. As a matter of fact, for smaller ships, they actually had a means with logs and different things of pulling the ships over the little stretch of land as opposed to making them sail all the way around. So instantly you're thinking commerce and those things, uh, international commerce. But also then think if your relatives live in South Greece and you live in the north, what do you have to do? You have to go through Corinth to get there. And, and so both, whether you're going north, south, coming in from east, west, so it is, it's a bustling hub of commerce, of trade. It was known um, for, uh, uh, for pottery and earthenware and metalworking and all, all that kind of stuff. In, the, in its midst, there was a very high plateau and... Uh, toward the south end of the city that literally just rises up about 1,800 feet. And on the top of it is what was called the Acrocorinth, an Acropolis. And on top of it were some temples and things of that nature. And one of them was the Temple to Aphrodite, who gets associated even today, that language Aphrodite and aphrodisiac with the concept of love, romantic love. And so when we begin to piece all this together, Paul is walking into a bustling, hustling uh, town that you got you to gotta just think this. You might, you might even want to think military, uh, something like that, or, or, or navy town, a seaport, you know, kind of from both sides. Um, all of the, the merchants coming in, it was proud of its education. Um, they were, you know, there were various schools there. It was proud of sports. The Isthmus Games were actually more famous at this time than what we uh, know happened in Athens, the Olympic Games. They overshadowed the Olympics back then, the Isthmus Games. They were held every two years in in Corinth, so you, again, now you now you've got athletes coming. Um, the we mentioned religion, the, particularly the worship of Aphrodite and her fertility cult. Um, and so, is is this city from what we're describing Corinth something like 
what we see today? Well, I think there's an awful lot of resemblance. There's almost a sense in which you could say things really haven't changed much in 2,000 years, have they? With the interest in, in sports, in sexuality, in commerce, in greed, in um, uh, that, that, that whole metropolitan idea. So that's going to be the kind of place where we can still say that whatever the secular culture is characterized by, it cannot hinder God being faithful to his people. The second thing under this, then, so let's, let's think about a few ways in which God then is, uh, is faithful to Paul here. We've already, we say, is any place too difficult for the Lord to found and grow his church? And the answer is no. That's from the first point. So God is faithful, secondly, to provide fellow workers. Paul entered Corinth alone. He had come from uh, Philippi and been driven out of there, and there were a few other places. He had come to uh, the Berea. Berea was further north and such. So he's come, and he's left uh, Timothy and some of his other traveling companions to do some other chores. So he's walking in alone to this place. One man. Sounds kind of familiar, like... Like Doug's, in Doug's prayer, here comes Jonah, one man, into this unbelieving city. And here comes Paul. But the Lord did not leave him alone. And in Corinth, we see what God does. And, and I want you to see how the Lord does this because it's in our text. You say, well, look at this. He meets two Christians that uh, get mentioned several times in the scriptures, uh, Aquila and Priscilla. Why, are they, why do they happen to be in Corinth? There was an edict by the Roman emperor throwing them out of Rome. And so what, is not our Lord just amazing? What would have been at that moment for Aquila and Priscilla in Rome to get this edict? Oh, no. Uh, you know, we've got to leave. We've got to leave our home. We've got to leave our jobs. Oh, this is terrible. Well, they pick up and go. And lo and behold, they end up in Corinth. And here comes the Apostle Paul. How amazing is that? So God is faithful in these difficult times, to provide fellow workers. And that's what we have with one another, is it not? We're not alone in this. I was, um, I was speaking with um, Chris Popovich about the Thursday evening study, and he did mention that there was someone from the, um, uh, from the community, but even as Richard has spoken to. In other words, it wasn't just Chris Caples being there alone, was it? There were brothers and sisters from this church who came alongside and, and provided support. And, and God is faithful to do these kinds of things. Uh, so he is still doing that. A third way God is faithful is God is faithful <coughs> to provide, let's say, financial resources. 
Maybe they're not great. Maybe they, we, uh, they appear to be meager. But Paul received that which he needed. You get this when you begin to put this into the context with some of the things he mentions in his letters. Uh, the one I'm specifically thinking about is Philippians 4, starting at verse 14. Paul writes, "Yet and remember, he had been in Philippi first, Macedonia, and come down into Greece toward Corinth. And so, but he writes to the Philippians, he said, it was kind of you to share my trouble. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, we could put parenthetically to end up in Corinth, um, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering. So, so once again, Paul, you know, he's walking into Corinth alone. Oh, wait. There's Aquila and Priscilla. Oh, wait. Oh, here are some gifts. And so, and and they and by the way, he gets further support because if you are still in Acts 18, you'll note verse five. uh, After he's met in, in in the synagogues and done some teaching, it says, "When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia." All right, it's the the translation in the ESV reads, "Paul was occupied with the word." I think the better, I'm not sure if that clearly communicates what, uh, what transition is made there. It was said just the earlier verse that he was working, he was a tent maker working with, um, with Aquila and Priscilla. When Silas and Timothy arrive with gifts and support and such, and of course their ability to work, what, what I think we want to understand is Paul is now freed. He's got resources and he's freed to proclaim. He's freed to evangelize. He's freed to do it on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and, and throughout the week. I think that's the point that Luke in writing is trying to, to get across. And the fact is that he feels constrained to do that. He's devoted to do this. He's held captive by the word of God and wanting it. And it goes on, you see, in the descriptive language, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And so can God be faithful in a wicked society? Uh, by the, absolutely. Can he provide fellow supporters? Yes. Can he provide financial resources? Yes. Fourthly, God is faithful to add to his church even in the presence of opposition. God is faithful to add to his church even in the presence of opposition. Because did you note, as we read, you get these little indicators. It says, well, uh, Titius Justus, a worshiper, he was next door, and Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. What a, what, you know, what a key... Um, a key moment, I would think, 
The ruler of the synagogue believes that Jesus is the Christ because of Paul's testimony. But then you go on and it says, and many, key word, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And I want us, I really do, I want us to hear how wonderful this is. Part of what's driving me or drove me to this text is precisely the news we repeatedly hear about this culture in which we live. And so when you read now in Acts 18 that many of the Corinthians believed, listen in 1 Corinthians what that meant. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse verse 9, he says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then listen to this list. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What was Corinth like? Well, there's your description. Drunkards, revilers, greedy, evil businessmen, homosexuals, and and the like. And then Paul says, and such were some of you. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Boy, do we ever have an, I never can get it right, LGBTQ+, whatever. Do we ever have a culture like that? Sure we do. Can God save them? You You bet your life he can save them. Do we have greedy businessmen, evil people, uh, transacting business? Do we have do we have evil, wicked politicians? You not every one of them. There are a lot, God's people are amongst that group too. But still, are do, are they there? Absolutely, they're there. Is God hindered by them? Is God's faithfulness questionable because of what we read in the news? Absolutely not. And so we want to come fifthly then to uh, this key statement in Acts 18. Uh, I say fifthly, God is faithful to be God. God is faithful to be himself, absolutely loyal, consistent with himself. Look at what happens to Paul. He has a vision in the night, and I'm not going to say we're going to get visions, uh, but but look look at this message. Verse 9, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for... I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, 
For I have many in this city who are my people. And so Paul stays there, one of the, one of the longest places he ever stayed, a year and six months, 18 months in Corinth, planning that church. But I want us to stop for a moment and see, see God is faithful to be present with us as a church in the ministry he calls us to. God is faithful to be with you as an individual in your work. He says, I am with you. When Jesus gave the great commission, that's exactly what he promised. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He is the God who is going to be faithful to be present. He is going to be the God who is going to be faithful to protect you. Now, he says, no man will attack you in order to harm you. That's a, that's a specific promise in this point to, uh, to the Apostle Paul. But I think there is still application for us. It's not that God's servants are guaranteed physical safety. It may have happened to you that you have been persecuted physically or harmfully in some way as a Christian. You may know clearly of those. We know certainly it happens in the world, so it's not some type of universal principle. But we can say that we, we can know that no one is going to stop us, no one is going to touch us, hinder us, kill us, until God's, our Father's purpose for our lives is accomplished. I think we can make that kind of application from such a specific promise to the Apostle Paul, and he is the God who fulfills his purposes. What is his purpose? He says in Corinth, I have many people. They will come to me. All that, all that Jesus has redeemed by his blood will come. And so these things, this God, our God, is still this kind of faithful God to be present, to be protective, to be carrying out that statement, you know it so well. Jesus says, I will build my church. And he built one in Corinth. He built one there in that society. This, this message, uh, uh, I need to get to the other point. There's just so much here. But this is the message that's given to Moses. Deuteronomy 31.6, to Moses, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. This is the same message to Joshua, Joshua 1.5. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. It's the same message to Solomon in 1 Kings 6, 12 and 13. If you'll walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep my commandments, I will carry out my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will not forsake my people. It's the same message to Israel in Isaiah 41, 17. It's the same message that Jesus said to those who would come to me. John 6, 37, all, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. It's the same message. I remember a sermon decades ago 
when the preacher was preaching on Hebrews 13. And it was just an amazing thing because you think, well, that's a great statement to Joshua. And the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13.5 quotes the, the statement that God made to individual Joshua. He universalizes it for the people of God in Hebrews 13.5. It says this, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And that is followed by our response, the author of Hebrews says, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, we need to press, uh, uh, and I will be brief, to the second major heading, our faithfulness. Our faithfulness. And one of the wonderful things, uh, the truth of God's sovereignty, the truth of election, the truth that he will be faithful to accomplish his purposes, does not lead Paul to conclude that he has no further part to play, that he can take up his easy chair, that he can um, do whatever, sit on, the, sit on the coast of Corinth and watch God work. Paul stays a year and six months, longer than he had stayed at any other city except Ephesus. He stayed there a little bit longer. But he stays there 18 months, preaching the gospel in order that through his preaching, those whom God had chosen would come to faith. One person has said it this way, predestination implies successful evangelism. Think about that. It's right. Predestination, election, the purchase of a people by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ implies, you might even say, secures successful evangelism. The men's covenant group this last Saturday, we were looking at Matthew 11, and it's, it was just, it's just remarkable. Jesus is speaking to this mass of people around him, and they are unresponsive. They cared nothing about uh, John the Baptist's ministry. They call him a glutton and a wine drinker, and they're not interested in him either. And in the midst of what looks like absolute failure that day, Matthew records Jesus basically uh, looking up to his father in heaven and saying, Father, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, but you've revealed them to little children. It is astounding. He continues his ministry and predestination, election, the sovereignty of God is the foundation, is the, 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 the starting point, the, the, the place upon, the firm place upon which he stands. And right after that statement, looks again at that mass of people and says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, continuing to preach and teach. Out there. So, Our instructions are true. So we see God's faithful. 
And obviously the application is, what about our faithfulness? Not to be afraid, not to be silent. Those statements in verse 9, to keep on speaking. Paul understands rightly, it's a time to get going. It's a time to be bold in Corinth. It's a time to be courageous in Corinth. It's a time to be faithful to the calling God has given him. None of the traits of a Corinthian culture were to be used to justify silence, inactivity, certainly not conformity or syncretism or fear. And you see right there is the application for us. None of the uh, traits of the 21st century United States of, of America culture are to be used in our lives to justify fear, discouragement, uh, certainly not conformity, and involvement in them, or fear, or silence. Our faithfulness is to be shown in both life and tongue in how we speak and how we live. And we do so because we stand on the same foundation as the Apostle Paul foundation of God's faithfulness to be with us, to be present, to protect us, and to be accomplishing his purposes in our lives. We walk by faith, not by sight. Paul will tell Timothy, who tended toward fearfulness and timidity, for 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, I remind you, I remind me tonight, I remind all of us tonight to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of his hands. That was the statement to Timothy. But to be encouraged to believe in the faithfulness of God and therefore act in faithfulness tonight. Tomorrow, as you embark on your work or in different chores, to be faithful to spread the gospel. Because I believe God still has many people, many people. We've had, uh, I was thinking, uh, and I'm going to quit. Too much time has gone on. But if you think about some of the sermons recently, they're all moving to this. We've heard from Pastor Will preach on prayer Preach on a living word that accomplishes its purposes. Preach on a unified church that is building itself up in love. I preached a church characterized by a second coming Christ. A Christ that will come in victory. We are on the winning side. And there's a world desperately in need. And secularism, modernity, uh, queerness, whatever, will not withstand God in his faithful working out of bringing a people to himself. Let us be faithful. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. How many times, O Lord, do you tell your people, do not be afraid? And Lord, sometimes it's not fear. Sometimes we just don't even know exactly what to say. And yet, even there, 
Even the Apostle Paul, and we would echo his prayer, asked people to pray that he might know how to speak to people, seasoned, as it were, he says, with salt, so that he might know how to answer people in different situations. So, Lord, give us, give us this faith, this confidence that you will not let us down. The glory of your name is involved in your faithfulness. You will honor that. Help us, Lord. We fail so often. Help us to walk faithfully in this world. Deliver us from evil and the evil one. Keep us under your care and in your name. And may we with joy proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.